Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. Navigating the world of product marketing is tough. At Fluvio, we get it, probably more than anyone else. We see you wrestling with resources, proving your team's worth, and juggling changing responsibilities all the time. But imagine a world where you could confidently and systematically tackle your product marketing challenges. That's where our go-to-market model comes in. The Fluvio go-to-market model guides each one of our engagements with the likes of Stack Overflow, LinkedIn, NASDAQ, and many more, and provides companies with a path to clarity and success. And now, we're thrilled to package up that model and deploy it within our new product, the Fluvio Go-To-Market Assessment. The Go-To-Market Assessment delivers transformative insights to gauge your team's performance, identify key investment areas, and sets up benchmarks for success. If you are a product or marketing leader, get started today with our proprietary Go-To-Market Assessment and receive a customized evaluation and actionable insights within one week. Just go to fluviomarketing.com slash GTM dash assessment today. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Stephen Cohen. Stephen is a 4X founder and the current founder and CEO of Winware, an AI company dedicated to helping product-led teams improve customer satisfaction, reduce churn, and increase trial conversion rates. With a background as a successful serial entrepreneur, Stephen brings a wealth of experience and a very unique perspective on how to build and exit companies and how product and product marketing leaders can harness AI and data analysis to drive value for customers. I value this conversation and the time Stephen gave me tremendously, and I believe you all will as well. We covered a ton of ground over the course of our chat, which lasted over an hour, from what it's like building and exiting three businesses, and he's currently working on his fourth, what Monday.com and other leading PLG companies are doing to drive conversions and retention, why it's important to just do it and not mull ideas over for far too long, and so much more. So without further ado, let's jump in. Steven, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have such an interesting background. I wanted to dive right in on today's show. There's a couple of things in your background that are super interesting to me and hopefully our listeners. First is you've started a bunch of companies. Um, that in itself is a topic that I want to make sure I really cover. The other topics um, are sort of trending. One is artificial intelligence, generative AI, and how that may impact a lot of the work we're doing. And I know your company right now is sort of in that space. And then also product-led growth, so PLG companies and things we can learn from that model. So we will hopefully weave these things together in one episode, but I'd love to start first with your background and sort of your early career. From what I gathered in our early discussions and in research, it looks like you started out in investment banking mm -hmm. and then went off and decided to get your MBA from, from Harvard and then a short stint in sales uh, before you went in and, and founded your, your first company. 
buyyourfriendadrink.com. Love the name. <laughs> so did I get that early career progression right? Yeah, I had a mm-hmm. stop at a company called DoubleClick. I worked there for three years uh, between investment banking and, and Harvard. Um, so I moved from a finance role to an operational role, and then I went got an MBA. Got it. Okay. And so I guess walk me through kind of like where you're at, where your mind was at, and in particular, sort of maybe what you didn't like about investment banking, I'm assuming, because you went in a different direction and, and the, uh, what ultimately led you to want to get your MBA from, from Harvard. So the thing I didn't like about investment banking was really just, I, I just learned that I did not want to be in a, in a, in a services business. Um, no offense. <laughs> you know, I, don't, <laughs> uh, I, I like to own the problem and own the solution and see it all the way through as opposed to what I was doing earlier in my career was helping uh, some companies, you know, finance a part of their business or, um, uh, you know, finance their growth or, or acquire another company. And I remember putting together like this financial model to put these two companies together and I was like sitting at my desk and I was doing this work. I'm like, this makes a ton of sense. I really hope this works out. And I kind of would like to be involved in like making it work out, you know, as opposed to just advising, uh, you know, people that, that I think this is a good idea. Um, and, um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's all a matter of preference and what, what people like to do. And I, I just, um, I love to kind of, uh, you know, just me, uh, you know, my personality. I just, I, the professional services part of my early career was just not fulfilling enough for what I wanted to to do. I wanted to own the problem and see it through versus help a whole lot of people, you know, a whole lot of companies. That's more of the services mindset. Um, I like to go deep on one. Got it. So your mentality was, was clearly different than the other folks you were working with in that. Yeah. In that space. Yeah. It's also, uh, investment banking is a very unique culture. Um, and, uh, it's, it's not a positive, happy place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you work crazy hours. It's a very kind of cutthroat culture in investment bank. And to be candid, I found myself not liking the person I was becoming. I was becoming mm. this kind of like, very money focused, like cutthroat person. And I was like, I don't really like this version of myself, to be honest with you. And um, I'm like, I, I looked around, I'm like, like the old, the people who have been there longer than me that you don't actually get better, you get worse. <laughs> and so uh, I was like, I really don't want to be them. Like, no offense to those people. <laughs> like, I'm sure they're, uh, maybe they're nice people. But um, they, I, I just, the, the culture of these banks is so, uh, investment banks is just so like it just wasn't the right fit for me for my personality and what I wanted to do and be happy. And so I guess actually let's let's start with was this New York City where where were you yeah. and where are you? Yeah, I was in New York City on Wall wow. Street, you know, down there, um, working for one of the big investment banks, Merrill Lynch, Merrill Lynch, and you know we we're working hundred plus hour weeks in, in my early career, uh, you know, not sleeping, being exhausted. It's funny. My my roommate at the time was my best friend in in uh, college. We were living together in New York City, and um, and uh, we like never saw each other because he was investment banking and I was investment banking, and so uh, like there was there were months on end where we we didn't even see each other. We'd like send each other emails from from work, be like, "Hey, dude, 
you know, how's it going? It was like my best friend growing up and we never saw, we thought we moved to New York. We're like, this will be great. We'll live together. We'll have so much fun. We'll like have fun in New York city. And we were both working so much that we didn't even, you know, uh, we didn't even, uh, see each other, but, um, yeah. And then, so I guess when you're thinking about what's next, you clearly were looking up, recognized that you didn't want to be an investment banking, didn't like what you were becoming was, how did this this idea of getting your MBA was that just the most natural next step? Yeah, so I went to I went to work at DoubleClick in the first in their corporate development group and then in an operational role. Mm. So I I worked I kind of transitioned from pure finance to internal finance to business operations, and I realized as I made that transition, I'm like, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to run a company. Um, and I kind of knew that growing up, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur. And so I kind of knew growing up that I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point. And so as I started to transition, uh, from a finance early in my career to, of an operational role, you know, I started to realize how much more I needed to learn and how much more I wanted to learn. Um, and, and so that's where, you know, I decided to kind of make make the investment in going to get an MBA. Got it. Okay. So when you went to get your MBA, it wasn't necessarily, or it wasn't at all a means to transition into another industry. It was actually learning the skills required to build a company. Your goal was to build a company. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's different than, uh, than some folks. Like my, my brother went and got his MBA from university of Texas and ultimately actually has started his own business. And similar to you, I think we grew up because our, our father had created a, a business. We sort of um, probably always had that in the back of our heads, whether we knew it or not. Right. But I know a lot of folks go in to get their MBA just simply to transition careers. And um, it seems to be an effective path to, to doing so. What was the, a big, what, did you have big takeaways coming out of that program? Um, sort of yeah, where I, were you post MBA where you were not pre MBA? You know, I, I, um, I know that there's a lot of mixed kind of reactions to getting an MBA. Uh, some people think it's not, not worth it. I don't know. I, I had a great experience and I learned a lot and I built a lot of amazing networking relationships that have helped me tremendously in business. Um, uh, so I, I think that, you know, um, I think it turned out like it was a, you know, huge home run, uh, you know, for, for me, I, I learned a lot about different, um, aspects of business that I, I still think about on a daily basis, uh, when running my companies. Um, and you know, it's, it's the whole thing is like, you always get out of it, what you put into it. And the, the, the thing about a, a master's program of any kind is that the professors are people who think really, really, really deeply about like this one topic. You know, and they go really, really deep and they really understand this one topic super, super like deeply. And if that topic is important to you, like there's no better person to kind of interact with and experience with and learn from than, than someone like that. And that's the beauty of going to a master's program is you get to interact with these these deep, deep, deep thinkers on like specific topics that are relevant to you. And if you can't get something out of that. Like, I feel like that's on you, you know, it's not on the program. You know what I mean? Like if you can't talk to someone who's, who spends their entire career learning about the best practices, you know, and like the best approaches and the thing, the successes and the failures on this one topic, and that topic is clearly in your career path, 
you know, I, I don't know, man. I think you're not you getting your MBA. Yeah. 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 So like, that's what I loved about it. Like I, I'm someone who hated school growing up. I found it very, very boring growing up. Um, I, I hated, like, I never applied myself. I found like, I always, I like optimized to like the least amount of work I can do to get, to get, still get B's because if I got C's, my would get yelled at. But if I got B's, my mom would not bother me. So like I figured out like the, the minimum viable homework that I could do, the minimum viable work that I could do, MVW or whatever, uh, that I could do to like, like I optimize how like to do the least amount of work to get, you know, you know, A's and B's in school. But then, you know, and I hated it, but, but man, I love business school. Business school was the first time in my educational experience that I was like totally locked in and like I, I just couldn't get enough of it. Um, and then the, the people, I'll tell you that the most amazing thing about going to school, you know, top business school is everyone that I went to school with now is running something, you know, or senior, senior doing something. And, you know, these are people I used to socialize with and party with and have fun with. And now they're senior exec here or CEO there or, you know, managing director there. And, and it's just amazing how you walk into a meeting and you have that credibility with them, how much easier it is to kind of get business done and, uh, and, and network. So I've had, I've had a lot of benefit from my, from my MBA. So now walk us through post MBA, you start this, this company, buyyourfriendadrink.com. Yeah. Can you walk us through that early period and then ultimately what it was like selling the business to living social after what I would imagine be being an intensive time period and investing a lot sort of in, in that business? What was that whole, whole uh, spectrum like? Yeah. So this was, I, I hit my 30th birthday. We were pre-kids still. I was married. We were pre-kids. We were living in, in uh, Hoboken right outside New York City. And I kind of, I was like, man, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like now's the time to kind of go for it because I have no kids, you know, dual income, no kids. We were kind of like, we were okay. And, um, and so I, I, uh, I was like, but what do I, what, what, what do I want to do? And, 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 um, I was kind of spending some time chewing on ideas and, uh, I got this phone call from my buddy from business school. Who's like, he's, uh, he's like, man, we just closed this big deal. And I was like, man, I wish we were back at school. I'd take you out and buy you a drink. And I was like, man, what, what's going on there? And so I thought a lot about that and that kind of use case of like, um, what I called it was like micro gifting, right? Like there's no, like, what can you give someone for 10 bucks? That's cool. Like not much. Right. Um, and, but like, if you buy someone a drink, they're like, ah, that's awesome. Thank you. You know, it's like such a social positive vibe thing. And the reality is, is like, you know, like there's a, there's a strong use case for there for that. And so I was working for IBM at the time and I was doing selling software for IBM. And so I, I did, um, kind of like a, a lean approach. I didn't even know it was called lean at the time, but I basically, while I was working for IBM, uh, there was two sides to the market. There were the bars and restaurants that had to basically take my gift card. And then there was the consumer side. Do they want to buy it? And um, so I walked around to a whole bunch of bars and restaurants 
just personally. Like I had no, I had nothing. I was just literally, I was just Stephen Cohn, salesperson for IBM, CEO, <laughs> founder of, of uh, buy your friend a drink that I had business cards made up for like, like really, really cheap. Um, and um, I was like, before I invest anything, can I, can I get bars and restaurants to say yes? Like, and cause if I don't have bars and restaurants who will like work with me, then, the, then I got nothing. So I just literally would spend my afternoons walking around New York City, in, walking into bars, um, and saying, "My name's Stephen. Here's what I'm trying to do. Do you want to? Do you want to sign up?" And I remember the first time a, a bar said yes. They're like, "Yeah, sure, I'll sign your contract." I'm like, "Contract? I need one of those. Let me go get one of those." Um, so you know, it was very kind of bootstrappy, very you know thing. But what I was doing was de-risking. What I was doing was trying to understand what the key hypothesis that I needed to prove to, that there was a business here. And then how do I keep knocking them off in the lowest risk, lowest cash investment scenario? Um, and that's basically been my model throughout all my startups is just always about trying to understand what are the key assumptions and then how do we de-risk that those assumptions as much as possible and validate. Now you can't know for sure, but you know, I, I, I try to be as systematic about that as possible. Um, once we signed up about 20 bars or so and it got easier and easier, um, then I had to build the, the site. And so we built the site in a very kind of low friction way. We kind of figured out this hacky technology solution that would work. And, um, and then we launched it. And what's crazy is that, um, by the way, around that same time, I don't know if you remember – um, I'm, I'm a little, I think I'm a little older than you. So around that time, Facebook was opening up their APIs and there was all these like free apps that were going around that where you could like send these like little things or whatever. And like the one app that like took off went totally viral was like, you could send yourself a friend on Facebook, like this virtual beer. And it would just be like an icon. You were just sending someone an icon, but it wasn't like a real beer, but it, they were, it was, it was the fastest growing little app on Facebook. And I thought that was kind of good consumer validation of like this kind of like gifting idea. Um, and so uh, we built this thing and we launched it and we got tremendous press coverage. I don't know what it was. We got oh, huge wow. press coverage. Like CM, like I got, I was interviewed by Aaron Burnett on CNBC on Friday afternoon for a two minute segment at one of my partner bars, I was like sitting at the bar and Aaron Burnett comes on and they set up the camera in the, in the New York city, you know, bar. And they like cleared out this area and there, I was talking, I had a two minute interview with Aaron Burnett and, um, how did that come about? You did like, how, did they reached, they just reached out to you. We put out a press release. I had like this person working with me who, who did, who worked in PR for his full-time job and he just put a press release out and it All got right. picked up. Yeah. And just people thought this was a fun like idea. Like, and I, so, so then I'm getting all these inbound emails from liquor companies and they're like, Hey, this is cool, but like, I don't want to buy one drink. I want to buy 10,000. How do I do that? Right. Cause like I have this sampling budget. I have all these budgets. I gotta, I gotta move, you know, move alcohol. So we kind of pivoted the model from like a consumer to consumer gifting thing to, how do I get liquor companies to buy 10,000 drinks and distribute them at all these bars? That's a totally and, different business. Totally different business. But like I was scrappy. We raised a very little bit amount of money and I needed the revenue. I needed the cash. So I was like this, 
this con- like literally like I signed a three hundred fifty thousand dollar contract with like with one liquor brand and and I'm like uh, we got to do this you know yeah, like that's more revenue, that's more cash than we actually um, uh, you know raised from from investors so so um, so we started pivoting the model things were going great we were actually we were growing we were cash flow positive we were like we we had this new model and then and then out of nowhere Lehman Brothers. Uh, imploded in 2008 and started the uh, the, the the default uh, crisis, the default swap crisis uh, that uh, the kind of like brought down all those investment banks and the government had to step in. But I don't know for those who are listening, uh, <laughs> it was um, it was worse than the COVID shutdown. Like I mean, like like the business. Like I thought, like. I thought the world, like I thought the world was coming to an end. Like, like I thought, like every, I think we were going to pre back to prehistoric levels. Like everything was just all these companies uh, were going bankrupt, you know, because like yeah. the whole financial industry was like imploding. Yeah, put into question, yeah, yeah. So um, around that time, we were we were actually out raising capital. We were trying to raise our Series A. We thought we were like ready to go. We actually had a, a like a like a verbal from like a huge liquor distributor to invest in our series a, um, at like a great valuation. And like, like they're like, it was going to be a partnership. that was a combination of cash and distribution and all this other great stuff. And then when that, when that whole scenario unfolded, like everything stopped, everything stand still. And and my big $360,000 contract got put on hold. And then they, they're like, we're not going to pay you. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Sue them? You know, like, by the time I do a lawsuit, like it's done. So then, I, you know, I I had to like it was just a mess. Um, Real quick, yeah. did you end up changing the name of the company? If your model changed to maybe you didn't get to this point, we didn't get if, to it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah that was okay. a great point. the intention was probably when you raise Series A, you're going to have to pivot the brand and, and company a bit. But we actually, we actually, so like we launched a, a program called Buy Your Friend of Belvedere with Belvedere Vodka, and Buy Your Friend of Hornitos with Hornitos Tequila. <laughs> And like, like, like these brands were like, like paying us six figures to launch these programs because they didn't, they were just wanted to experiment with like social media and driving people to bars. And they just thought it was such an innovative like concept. And so, um, around that time, my, uh, 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 coming back to the early part of our conversation, a, a friend of mine from business school was the CFO of a company called living social and mm. living social at the time was just this Facebook app that went really viral, but like they had no, they, they couldn't make any money, but they had this, they had these viral consumer to consumer, you know, apps um, on Facebook. And they had just raised a round, you know, a $5 million round. And, um, uh, but they, they really couldn't figure out how to monetize. And, um, so we were into partnership discussions with them because I was like, Hey, if I do all these buy your friend of Belvedere, I want to send people who like Belvedere. You have got all these Facebook users. Yeah. Awesome. So when the, when the company started, when the, the series a round died, I reached out to my friend and I said, would you be interested in buying this? And he said, yeah, I think I am. Uh, and so we talked to the CEO and the deal came together in like a month or two. Um, oh, wow. like, that conversation to like close close the M and A deal at the end of March of two thousand and nineteen or two thousand nine, sorry. And uh, and so then we were within Living Social, 
and we started working together as a team. And around that time, Groupon was taking off. Groupon was exploding. And the CEO came to me and said, you know, buying drinks are cool. But what do you think about like the way Groupon's doing it where you could buy like cupcakes or you could, you know, a discount or you could buy like whatever, you know, like they were doing all these discount coupons. And I'm like, I, I don't see why we couldn't do that. So we, we pivoted the model like and it was like the MVP was like over a weekend, like over the weekend, they launched a Groupon clone type website. We used my sales team at the bars and restaurants to basically sell these other things. And I remember the first Groupon-esque thing that Living Social did was a was a cupcake, discount cupcake at like a, a bakery in Washington, D.C. And we generated more revenue off of that one like Groupon thing than we generated off of um, like – like it was like a month's worth of revenue of one like coupon in one city. Wow. And um, – and it was like – all of a sudden it was like the whole team was like, uh, yeah, we're going to all do that now. you know. And so we basically said – so we pivoted the whole thing and started basically just de-emphasizing like the buying the drinks and just so focus solely on like all these discounted coupons like Groupon style and how fast can we scale this thing. Um, and so you know, crazy ride. Like the the company went to – uh, valuation from a, a nine million pre money to a six billion post money in three wow. years. Nine million to six billion in three years. Crazy, crazy. Um, and you know, Amazon bought a big piece of it, and it was just a you know wild, wild ride. And uh, they uh, unfortunately there was they they couldn't make it cash flow positive. So so ultimately the investors were like, okay, there's gotta be a business here. Like we can't just keep funding these losses. Yeah. Um, and, um, they couldn't get there. And so they ended up, um, selling to Groupon, um, for a number, uh, far, far, far lower than the 6 billion valuation. So, um, crazy ride, but learned a lot, you know, and uh, very, very much a, pivot and switch and, and adjust to kind of what we're learning, you know, thing, which is really kind of set off a lot of my career and kind of my approach to starting companies. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay. So then post living social, it looks like you went uh, into a sales leadership role at Quancast, which yep. we don't have time to go too deep on that one, but yep. quickly thereafter, you started your second company, yep. which is it arrive? Am I pronouncing that right? Or is it I arrive? Yeah, I arrive. Yeah, I arrive. Yeah, um, not the best branding either. But um, <laughs> um, the that was a failure. We sold it to TripAdvisor, but that was a failure. And I think the biggest mistake there was um, not really understanding the problem space that we were solving and just trying to build this thing that we thought were was cool, um, and instead of really trying to solve a problem. And so we were building it and. Uh, you know, coming off of Living Social, investors were throwing – like they were coming to me saying, we'll fund your next company. I'm like, yeah. I don't have a company. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 we'll fund it. And I was like, but I don't I don't have anything. They're like, well, come up with something. Um, you know, it's like it's like telling like a musician, like come up with a hit song. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that, is that, oh, so easy. I, I actually started – I learned a, a hard lesson, which is, you know, starting that company for the wrong reasons and uh, – it just it just clearly wasn't working, and um, 
I ended up selling it for to TripAdvisor for pennies on the dollar. But the lesson how did you so how did you even sell it to TripAdvisor? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, another HBS connection. So I actually had a connection through Harvard Business School and and reached Amazing. out to him about a partnership. And he's like, "Well, we're not going to partner with you because you're small and we're huge, um, but maybe we'll buy." It. And I was like, "Well, what about buying it?" And he's like. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting thing there, but it was pennies on the dollar. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was just a, it was just a, an exit to move on to the next thing. Move on to the next thing. It just yeah. it was an experiment that didn't work. Got um, it. And um, but yeah, through the HBS connection, I I ended up getting the exit there. Yeah. So there you go. The MBA, yeah, really paying dividends down the line. So <laughs> all right. So now you move on to company number three. Yeah. Tell us about uh, Validately, and it looks like you ran this one for much longer than the others. It looks like for over six years, you were the founder CEO here. So uh, what was different about this experience from the, the previous two companies? So the, I started Validately to solve the problem that I had with iRive, which was I didn't do proper customer discovery work uh, and user research. And you know, nowadays we think we, there's so many platforms and tools to simplify it. But back then... You had to basically post ads on Craigslist if you wanted to interview people, um, and it was like a multi-week process to kind of schedule, you know, people to interview for your, you know, uh, and then you had to use Skype for like, you know, remote sessions, um, and then you had to use another tool for screen recording and capturing it and and like sharing this with your development team, but they didn't want to watch the whole screen recording, so you had to try to create a clip using like Adobe or something like that. And it was just a just a nightmare of a of a process, um, and but but I said instead of just building it, solve this process that I experienced that was a nightmare. Let me go do a whole bunch of customer interviews and see if I can actually drive people. So so we uh, we set up a landing page that was really ugly, but had a specific value prop on it, and I did I bought LinkedIn ads targeted at product managers uh, okay. initially. And the first test was like, is this value prop enough to get people to click on an ad and sign up for a demo? Now, I didn't have anything to demo um, at first. I just wanted to validate whether that was a pain point strong enough to kind of get leads, inbound leads. Um, And I remember the kind of lesson there was like the first first, um, set of ads we ran on LinkedIn had like a terrible conversion rate, click rate, terrible click rate. And uh, I was like, oh boy, we're in trouble. We can't even get, we can't even get clicks. Um, and then this uh, marketing person who was working with me, read some article that, that um, if you want to get a higher click rate on LinkedIn, the best thing you could do is just buy some, get some stock photography and add it to your ads. And in particular, and I'm not I'm just telling you what the article said, if you have stock photography of, of women, you're going to get a higher click rate than if you do of men. So we ran an A-B experiment. Uh, we added uh, – we, we went to stock – we downloaded two stock photography of like – like we put in product manager man and product manager woman. And we got two stock photos. We added it to our ads. And wouldn't you know, we had one – we had a, an unbelievable click rate for our target. Wow. Like, like it was off the chart. It was so good that like someone from LinkedIn ads reached out to us and said, you're – we need to find out what you're doing because your your program popped up. Because the performance is phenomenal. And then we got like a 20% conversion rate on our ugly landing page that had basically stock photography on it as well. So then I was like, okay, there's something here. So we kept 
building and iterating on the model. We kind of validated it with those early customers, those early, you know, pain points. And we started really building. We had a very small team, one front end engineer, one back end engineer. And then I ended up bringing on who ended up a CTO became our co-founder. Um, and that was it. We just super, super small team. I had, hadn't been taking a salary. I was kind of, I was, I hadn't been taking a salary. Another thing, my buy from a drink, I didn't take a salary for two years. So early on in my career, I, I went without a salary for a big part of my, my startup life. Um, it was, it was hard. Uh, uh, that was the hardest part probably. Um, and, um, uh, we were just scrappy and we were just very focused on just solving specific problem, like not overbuilding, not delivering a big roadmap with a whole lot of features, just solving specific problems and really working with early customers to try to understand their needs, their pain points, what, you know, showing them a prototype, getting feedback on that prototype before we build it and then building it, delivering it and saying, is this, does this really solve your need? And we just kept building and building and building. Um, around that time, the 800-pound gorilla was was usertesting.com. Uh, user Zoom was live as well, but I think they were more European at the time. So the one that we kept running into was usertesting.com, and they they uh, you know they had a great brand name and a very good product, but we found that there's there's kind of a four use case quadrant of like user research. There's moderated, unmoderated against my panel and bring your own testers. Right. And we just said, user testing is awesome at unmoderated against their panel. We cannot beat them. Let's stay away from that. Let's go to these other quadrants. And we did that and we solved a real need and we carved out a niche for us. And we just, we just kept going after and after and after that. And we built a really good product that customers loved, you know, and we were getting um, a lot of trial. It was a product-led growth and a product-led sales uh, conversion rate. Um, it's a product-led growth, product-led sales, um, uh, you know, go-to-market model. So about 20% of our customers were pure PLG signups. And then the other 80% were PLG leading into a salesperson reaching out and and, and uh, trying to close them. Um, and... Um, you know, just building the business, you know, we were, we were cash flow positive. Uh, we were growing hundred percent year over year for, for multiple years while being cash flow positive. We did not raise a series a, we just raised kind of like an, like a, a little bit of a seed round. Um, and you're just building the business, winning customers. Uh, Google was our biggest customer. They were our seven figure customer. Um, we signed a three year license deal with them. Um, you know, so we, we, we really kind of, we proved that. that 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 deal with Google started with like one seat mm. on a monthly plan from one product manager who wanted to experiment with it to uh, you know, I think it turned out to be like to like a, a $10,000 a year contract, which we were excited about, but Google was like, this is annoying. I don't even know why we're doing this. Um, you know, Google procurement isn't interested in anything. That's not like, that's not big. They're just like, yeah. why, am I, why am I wasting my time with this? Um, and so, um, and then we turned that into a multi six figure, uh, contract, and then we turned it into a multi seven figure three year contract. What um, did they represent at that point in terms of percent of your revenue? Yeah. So they were, they were about 20% of our revenue. Wow. 20. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was big, uh, percentage, but it was such a validation point. And the other thing that I did was, uh, one of the big decisions I made early on 
was to go annual only contracts. Um, and that was probably, probably the single biggest operational decision I made, um, in all my startups. You were monthly before that? We were monthly. And the problem with monthly is in the use case that we were supporting, um, uh, there was a lot of people who were in the long tail for user research and only needed a tool for like a month or two and then would turn it off. And they would write us the nicest like cancellation emails. Love your product. Need to cancel. You know? And when when I read that, I'm like, we don't have a product problem. We have a business model problem. And the answer was, I just don't want that business. You know what I mean? Like, it's too much of a distraction. I don't need your... You know, yeah, right. $149, you know, uh, if you're not going to buy an annual contract, I'm just not interested. And so uh, we made the decision cold turkey. We're just going to, we're just going to hide the monthly options from our, from our pricing page and just only annual. And, you know, and I remember I got like a bunch of emails from customers. How could you do this? What are we, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to buy it. We're going to buy, we were ready to buy it, but we're not going to buy it. And I replied all of them the same. I said, you know, we'd really love to earn your business. Um, we really value as a customer, but we only offer annual plans. We hope you choose the annual plan. But the thing I knew, and by the way, every single one of them bought the annual plan. Every mm. single one. Not, not one customer. We did not lose one customer by, by not offering a monthly plan. And the thing I knew was I knew that we had a great product, solved this really specific need, and was differentiated versus the alternative. So What's the alternative? You go to user testing, have an inferior product. And by the way, they're, they're much more pricey. So, um, and then, you know, there was a couple other alternatives, but we had the best product. And so, um, so I was like, you know what, we're going to, you know, we're going to go with it. And the, the thing that ended up happening was not only do we have annual contracts, but then when I did the three-year deal with Google, I said to them, we only do annual contracts and they're all prepaid up front. So you got to buy the, got to pay for the three years up front. Oh, wow. Big and, deal. um, uh, and the finance guy, the procurement guy said, no, we're not doing that. I said, well, let me ask you a question. What's your cash earning in your bank account? He's like, I don't know. 1%. I said, all right, I'll tell you what prepay up front. I'll give you a 5% benefit. So now you're making money and I basically got a financing, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, it was a multi seven figure, you know, license deal, three year contract prepaid up front. And, um, basically we use that to invest in our team and continue to grow. Love it. There's a couple of things here that, that I loved hearing, um, as a, as a founder myself that I respect. One is you did the work up front to recognize what, like the big, um, what hundred pound gorilla in the room, I think you, you, you called them, uh, was doing. And instead of trying to work toward that, you actually worked away from that. You said, well, let's do what they're not doing. Right. Um, the other is you made what was probably a very tough decision in turning customers away at a point where, you know, a lot of people would not want to do that. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to focus on high value customers, what I see the future for the business. And that might turn some people away. It's just a hyper focus on, what I think will matter in the future. And then the other is uh, being creative with contract negotiations. Um, <laughs> I've had to learn all these things um, as I've yeah. been growing, growing Fluvia. There's never, it seems like you're the, you're the type of guy who doesn't really take no for an answer. Like you try to figure out 
well, what is the angle that works for both sides? You're a negotiator. You know, one of the one of the things that one of the classes I did at, at Harvard Business School was a negotiation class. Mm. And they all, the first thing is is uh, you get uh, you get a case study and you get partner up with a with with someone else and you both get the opposite side of the case study. You there's um, there's an orange and for for your own reasons you need three quarters of the orange and for their own reasons that are both both reasons are legitimate they need three quarters of the orange someone's going to die or some bad thing's going to happen if you both don't get three quarters of there's only one orange and if you read carefully enough and if you ask questions carefully enough you find out that actually i didn't need three quarters of the orange i only needed three quarters of the orange rind and mm-hmm. My partner only needed three quarters of the orange juice. So actually there was a win-win. Like we could both have actually more than three quarters. We could both have one because he, he didn't need the rind at right. all. He needed zero percentage of the rind. Yep. He just needed the juice. And if he needed three quarters, but if he could get more than he can get the whole all the juice, even better for him. And if I get all the rind, even better for me. Um, but you have to one, you have to read the details close enough in the case. And then two, you got to ask the questions, uh, and you know, uh, in doing that, and I, that lesson, that class, really, that lesson. Obviously, I'm telling this to the, this day, right? As we're talking, you know, 18 years later, um, really made an impact on kind of how I think about business and product and pricing and partnerships and stuff like that. Is yeah. like, you know, really try to understand at the detail level you know, what the other side and try to find the win-win, right? If you can right. find the win-win, right? Of course I got to get paid for it. And of course you have a limited budget. All good. The question is really, um, you know, what's, how do we grow the pie on your side? Right. Yeah. On its surface, it seems like you're sort of negotiating over one, one item, but right. really each side has their own goal to work. And for. there was, and there was, there was tons of people, there were tons of groups who got deadlocked. They just couldn't, <laughs> and there was some groups that started fighting. Yeah, they're like, they're, they're like, you know, if I don't get this, I need this orange for for medicine for uh, my, you know, a family member. How could yeah. you do this? You're gonna let you're gonna let my family member be sick? You know, it's like right. You know, and, and then like, also, yeah, that's turning the emphasis on yourself, right? In exactly. a negotiation, you should always try to be figuring out well, what do they care about? How do I pivot the conversation so it's constantly speaking toward what they care about exactly you know, they don't care what your what your story is exactly. i've learned that i've, I've definitely exactly. learned that yeah no. so all right so now i want to i want to chat a little bit about raising funds it sounds yeah. like you actually haven't had to do that or you've chosen to not do that in a lot of cases in terms of you know you mentioned not raising series a and sticking with a, a smaller seed round you've now you, but you also spoke to how your second company, you had a lot of investors telling you they wanted to invest despite not even having a company at that point. So now we're on company number four, which we're gonna gonna chat about. Um, and you have some great venture capital firms and angels based on my research. One of those, those VC, I think led by uh, Oceans Ventures. Yep. And they actually invested in a former guest on the show and a friend of mine, James McGinnis. He's the founder CEO of David Energy. They're uh, one of their portfolio companies. I'm, I'm familiar with Oceans. Um, and then I noticed a number of angel investors of 
that are, are noteworthy. Um, so has raising money for your endeavors gotten easier? Um, and then obviously you got to weave in right now of all time periods. It's probably super challenging. So definitely if you have a track record of starting companies, building products and creating exits, it's easier to raise capital. No question. Like than a first time founder. It's not, there's no question about that. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easier to get to product market fit and scale a business and, and create a new exit. Um, it just means raising capital. You have a little bit more credibility when you get started. Um, so I always treat, um, I treat raising capital like, like a sales process, right? There's a funnel. You talk, you need to talk to a whole bunch of investors, uh, just like you talk to customers and some of them are going to get to the finish line and some of them, you know, are not, are not. And, um, you can't take it personally. There's always a bunch of reasons outside of your control or even some within your control that you just disagree on. Um, and so you just got to, you know, treat it like a sales process, but instead of, you know, your product is, is, is shares in your company instead of your, your SaaS tool. Yeah. All right. So what about comparing the time period we're in now versus post 2008? sounds like it's not as, uh, you know, catastrophic as it was back then, but yeah. are there similarities around, around these time periods and how people are thinking about raising money for companies? Um, yeah. Are they entirely different? You know, it's amazing. Um, the the past twelve months, you know, has seen a radical change in the funding environment. Uh, maybe the past eighteen months, two years ago, or you know, uh, you know, maybe eighteen months ago, there were companies that were raising. 20, 30 million dollars with, with five, you know, design partners. Uh, and so to raise that, you're talking about 30 million dollars. You're talking about like a 90 million post money, right? 90 million dollar valuation with five design partners and zero revenue. Yeah, it's it's insane. You know, the thing with that you learn about as a multiple time founder, the thing that you learn about raising capital is that that's not really the answer. <laughs> um, that complicates the problem because um, especially if you raise before you're ready to scale, right? Um, the thing with, with investors is that they, 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 they will give you money, but they expect more of it coming back in return. And there's a timeline that they have, that they have in mind. Um, and um, so they're not doing it because they think you're a nice person. Uh, you know, the whole thing is just it's it's just a financial tr you know transaction in, in a lot of ways, and so the key thing is just making sure you understand all of that. Um, you know, and there are you know, Oceans is a great partner, and I have some other great partners that I work with on my cap table. They're very knowledgeable um, and they're very um, collaborative uh, and very helpful. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, I'm running the company and, you know, and, and I have to create value. You know, I have to build a product that customers want to buy and, and a business model that, that makes sense and that they're looking for a return on that capital. Um, and so that's my job is to deliver that. And there's no, there's no one that can do that really besides me and my team. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure. Uh, there's these companies that raise 20, $30 million dollars. Off of, um, you know, uh, off of five design partners, I'm I tell you what's going to happen. They're yeah, going to they're on a death march right now. Yeah, they're, they don't. They don't. The, you know, you, you know who I feel bad for. 
I feel bad for the employees of those companies because they don't even know. Most employees don't even know how options work. Um, they don't understand strike price. They don't understand you know expiration dates and stuff like that. Those companies that raise those monster rounds at those crazy, ridiculous, uns- unsupported valuations um, have have zero equity. They're they're all of them are working really hard to get venture capitalists their money back. That's that's all they're yeah, doing. But- you know, if you raise, if you like the, the growth that you got to show with a twenty million dollar round at a uh, at a you know sixty million or eighty million post. When you started that round, when you raised that round with zero revenue, I mean, just the bogey that you have to hit just just to get to par, right? Yeah, is you know you need to be doing a, a five six million ARR business in two years from zero revenue in this environment. In this environment, <laughs> in this environment where where yeah, I, I don't know about you, but like I'm talking to a lot of business people and they're they're like customers really aren't buying as much anymore. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. really holding tight to their purse books. So, you know, the other thing that's happened is because we went through this period of free money where where these rounds were going crazy, there's so many competitors in this space, each space. And so the differentiation becomes really hard. And so it's a race to the bottom on price because what else are you going to compete on? Yeah. Like there's so there's such little diff- product differentiation when there's eight, nine, ten companies in the same exact space. All of them have raised – Five, six, eight, ten, twenty million dollars, and they're all going after the same customer for the same use case. Like it's really hard to differentiate from a product standpoint. So how do how do you do that? And you know, and so one of the things that that we had to do post our round is really kind of tack and evolve and try to find our niche. You know, because um, there definitely were a bunch of companies that raised a lot of money. In the set, going after a similar space with that we were going after with Winware, and um, we've really had to kind of evolve our story, our value prop to customers, um, which is you know it you know we're st- I think we're starting to kind of find our footing, but it's been a process. It's certainly been a process. So why don't you yeah walk us through Winware, which is now your your current company, um, and and sort of what you're building and how that came about. Yeah. So one of our customers really, I thought, had a great catchphrase uh, for what Winware is. Winware, his his phrase was, and I, I agree with it, um, product-led growth on autopilot, right? And so the idea with Winware is in a PLG or even a PLS motion, product-led sales motion, or even a post-sales customer success motion, uh, the ultimate – thing it comes down to is customers purchase decisions, whether it's trial, upgrade, or renewals, will always be influenced on their perception of the value they get out of your product. If they're getting value out of your product or they believe they can get value out of their product, they're going to buy it or renew it. If they don't, then they won't. And so what is value? What does that mean? That means um, I'm a big believer in jobs to be done. So Customers buy SaaS tools because they have a job to be done. They hire Fluvio because they have a job to be done. What's that job to be done? You know, um, it's not I want better messaging. The job to be done is I want more leads. I want more conversions. I want, you know, I want want more uh, revenue opportunities, right? And so if they believe you can 
deliver that for them. They're going to pay for your services. If, if they believe you're doing a great job, they're going to continue to pay for your services. But it always comes back to, does the customer solve their need with your product or service, right? The challenge I see in a lot of SaaS companies with either low trial conversion rates or bad retention rates is that customers are not discovering how to use that SaaS product to achieve their goal. And the reason why is because there's so many things that these tools can do for you. And there's really hard for customers to figure out on their own how they can do it. You know, the default for most SaaS companies is a couple of tool tips when you sign up. You know, here's a feature, here's a feature, here's a feature, here's a feature. And then you have an email drip sequence. Here's another feature, here's another feature, here's another feature. And um, I, I'm, I'm sure you agree with what I'm about to say, which is customers don't give a shit about your features. They really don't care. Nope. No one cares about your features. They don't want your product. They don't want your features. They want solutions to their problem. And if you, if customers can figure that out, how to use your product to, to solve their problem, then they'll pay for it happily and, refer, and, and create referrals. If they can't figure that out, or they're sold by someone, a salesperson who explains it, but then once after the sale, they can't actually use the product to solve their need, or they don't use the product to solve their need, um, then you're going to have a churn problem. And uh, I found this out firsthand. We did kind of the MVP for Winware at my last company, Validately, before we sold it. We had a, uh, a customer segment that had a high churn rate. And we did some a deep analysis and we found out that there was there was um, one feature that was highly correlated with retention. And if, they, if that segment used this feature, they would they'd always renew. It was like their sticky, their aha moment, their kind of like activation moment, right? Um, but they weren't d- discovering it. They weren't understanding the value of it. Um, and through a lot of kind of deep product work as well as automated messaging and tracking and reporting on it, um, we actually changed their behaviors and that behavior change changed the, the revenue, the retention metric. Um, and so that was the kind of the MVP for Winware. And now what we've done is turn that into kind of a SaaS product. And so what we do is we help SaaS companies. Uh, we automate basically uh, their end users getting value, solving their needs uh, for their for their product, you know, to use their product. And so we frame the onboarding experience around the end user's job to be done. We explicitly ask the end user, what is their job to be done? And then we align their pro- the, the SaaS company's product features in this construct of called a playbook uh, around that specific job to be done. And then the rest is just pure play SaaS automation. So, so you know, if customer says, the thing I want to use that get out of this product is um, – uh, like take Riverside, like the thing I want to get out of Riverside, uh, you know, this, this recording tool that we're using is, uh, you know, fast video editing. That's my number one job to be done with this tool, right? Now, Riverside, I'm sure built a whole bunch of features around fast video editing, right? But if you can't understand how to use those or find those or, or figure them out, then you're going to churn from them. And so that we create a playbook around that. We automate messaging around that. We track everything. We update the CS team. We update the sales team, whoever it is. And, um, and, you know, basically hope to drive people to value, to understand how to get value out of that product. So I know we've talked about previously that that require in order to basically 
enact WinWare effectively, the software company has to be at a certain level of maturity in terms of they have to know what the job to be done is for their users or and, and capture that, right? So you brought up Fluvio as an example, and we do this ourselves. Like when we onboard clients, we ask, what are your goals for the next six to 12 months? What should we be focusing on? So we make sure that everything we're doing is working toward their goals. I know that, you know, through discovery on, on some of your, your calls and what I've experienced, some platforms maybe don't even have that. Um, do you have any, is, I guess, one, is that true? Two, are there any good examples of software companies that do this well? Yeah. So um, great question. So one is uh, we found um, we found uh, a huge percentage of people will do it through like a salesperson or a customer su success person having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And then they'll type it in free form text in either like a PDF doc or like their, their CRM. And the problem there is that it's not actionable. It's yeah. just it's just, just stored somewhere. somewhere. I check the box. My manager sees that I did it, but I, but that's not really helping me. Um, there are some companies who have no idea. They don't even have it. They don't even know. Uh, they're just building product. And they don't know what's, what pains they're solving. Um, what we do is we have a little widget that helps you capture that. And we'll, we'll, we'll give you advice and consulting on kind of like how to set it up, whatever. The best in class that I've seen is monday.com. So if you go through money.com's onboarding, money.com is a monster, monster product. You can do so many things. They call it the work OS, right? And if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't gone through money.com's onboarding, I would do it just, just to see this experience, right? And we actually created a blog post on it on our, on our blog, winware.com, uh, winware.ai forward slash blog. You can read money.com because we walk through the onboarding because it's so good. And what they do is they ask you, first they ask you some like, role questions. Who are you? Like, what, do you, what what's your role in this team? And then they say, what do you want to achieve first? And the use of the word first is so yeah. great because the thing that money.com and some of these other great PLG companies have figured out is, is even if you could do 10 things for a company, just do one first quickly, get them hooked on one thing really, really fast, solve a specific pain really, really quickly and then you could explain all the other things. The problem is everyone does it backwards. Everyone's like, here's all the things we could do. The problem, customers don't want to do all those things. They want to yeah. they sign up because they have an urgent need for one thing right now. And if you could do that with me, you got me as a customer. And then you could figure out how to expand my use case to these other things. And so then they say, okay, what, what specifically do you want to do for it? After you pick something, there's like a list of like 10 options. Then what do you want to, what do you want to, what do you want what specifically do you want to do first in that, in this category? And then they ask you another question of, of this, what do you want to do with, which you, which you need more help with first. And then, and then once you select that, it puts you into an onboarding flow, right? And what they're doing is they're helping you solve a need really, really quickly. And it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. Now they have an awesome, huge, um, you know, growth team that's basically done all this and work. And so what we've done with WinWare is we basically turned that exact mindset, that exact approach into a SaaS product. And so as a SaaS tool, you can basically implement our, our, our widget that captures persona jobs to be done and then aligns that to an onboarding uh, playbook. And then we track, we track the revenue, whether it changes uh, the business metric. Makes a lot of sense. And so from a marketing perspective, you must be focusing on trying to ed like educate folks on what 
uh, Monday and, and the likes of Monday are doing. And then ultimately what that content marketing strategy is doing is just feeding into what your product does. Right. So I'd imagine that's sort of where your emphasis is over the next quarter or so, right? Is trying to generate awareness around and education around what a great PLG and onboarding experience looks like. Right. Um, exactly. So great PLG companies convert 25 to 30% of their trials to, to paid, um, you know, above 30% is even better. And so one of the things I have and like, is like, I ask companies, these companies we talk to, like, what's your conversion rate? One of them's like 1%. And I'm like, well, you should be just to be average. You should be converting another 24%. And here's the math of how much money that would mean to you. Is that, yeah, is yeah. that, does that seem like a big number to you? It seems like a big number to me. Um, and if so, he, like, here's the playbook. Here's how you do yeah. it. Now, here's what I say. I'll tell you exactly how to do it. If you want to do it on your own, go for it. You know, go yeah, for right. it. It's, it's right. You know that it's, yeah, you know that the value that the, the platform you're building will be exponentially more effective or efficient exactly. right, than doing exactly. it yourself. Yeah, you're... You have a much, and you, I guess, Winware, I should say, Winware has a much easier story in regards to ROI than a lot of other companies do. Um, right. If you can say, like, what, it, in fact, you should capture on, like, leads, what's your conversion rate today? Um, yeah. And you can give them through a simple ROI calculator, assuming you get to a statistical significance on your end, you can say, well, win will, Winware will save you X amount. In, right. In, in percent and also in just dollars. Um, right. So it'll, yeah, that'll be something you can certainly leverage as you, you grow the, the company. Um, well, we're coming up on an hour, which is kind of wild. We, we've not been able to address everything, um, but there's a couple more things I do want to chat about. One yeah. is your decision-making process. And we've sort of batted around this as we walk through your background and as you've started these four, four different companies, but I always like to dig further. So do you have a process you you put yourself through when you have to make a, a decision? And if you do, what is it? Yeah. And I, I touched on a bunch of these. So it's so the process is I think uh there's two approaches. The first part of the process is similar to what I said about business school and Harvard, is I talk to as many experts or customers or whatever it is, I try to research the the problem to be solved, the problem you know, a lot and talk to different parties to try to understand it from a different bunch of different ways. And then the second piece I do is once I feel like I have a good handle on that, um, all the different alternatives, whatever, I try to run as many low risk, low effort experiments to, to de-risk as much to, some hypothesis as much as possible. Um, so um, if, if this is a big open question that if, you know, if this one thing is a big open question about whether it'll work or whatever it is, how do we, run an experiment to learn something more information about this as cheaply fast as low effort as possible. Um, and, and I've tried to use that approach to everything. So even with new features of my, of our product, I'll put this prototypes of new features in front of customers and ask them like, does this solve a pain point that we, that we talked about? Do you think it does? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, this is going to be on the next tier plan that you're up. Would you be willing to upgrade once we deliver this live? Like, can I mark you down? You're you're on the basic plan. Can I mark you down to upgrade you to the pro plan uh, once we push this live? Like, ask for the order up front. 
right? Um, and if the answer is no, well, then it's like, well, wait a second, then, then it's not a big enough problem, right? Then either, or the solution isn't good. Tell me what it is, right? Like, is this not important to you? Um, if it's important, then is the solution not good? Like, what's wrong with the solution, you know? Um, and so, um, you know, but if you get to a yes from enough of those beta, from those, enough of those basic plan customers that are willing to upgrade to the pro plan, well, then, you know, you have something, right? So whether it's with buy your friend a drink and me walking around talking to bars and getting them to sign a contract that meant nothing, but just put their name on a piece of paper saying they'll accept my gift card, right? Um, that de-risk one side of the equation for us, right? And I felt like the experience with these virtual beers being sent around by the tens of millions on Facebook de-risked the consumer side. So I was like, okay, so here's some data that I'm getting, an experiment I did, and some data I get from a third-party source that validates it. Now, now I just need to, you know, put that together. So that's my decision problem. I try to like make as as you know, de-risk as much as possible. Um, and then talk to as many people, experts as possible on the topic. Yeah, it's so funny how often the answer is fairly similar from other founders. Like, I think from the outside looking in, a lot of folks would assume that you're this person who takes on an exceptional amount of risk and likes to like place bets. And I think when you speak to someone like yourself, and I, I echo this, like, I I think that most founders feel like the decisions they're making are not that risky because they've put in so much work up front and went through this iterative de-risk process uh, to come at each decision. Um, so it's interesting to hear you you fall in line with that as well. So I guess, yeah, is there like, any- I don't gamble, can... for example. I don't gamble. At all? I don't, I don't really gamble, no. I, I, like, I, I'll go to, like, I, I have no desire. I, I mean, when I was younger, I was an idiot and I lost some money doing it. And I don't do sports gambling. I don't do, um, uh, I don't do, I don't go into casino and gamble. Yeah. I'll play poker because I don't feel, I feel like that's a skill game. game yeah. I won't do, I won't do roulette or, or craps or, or blackjack because it's just, I, I don't think it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. The odds are not in your favor. You're going to lose over time. Right. Period. Yeah, it's funny. I um, actually don't really know how to gamble. I've been to a casino a couple of times. I've played blackjack like once or twice, but yeah, I'm not a gambler myself. Although I did bet on the Denver Nuggets and we just won the, when I say we, I live in Denver. I'm actually in yeah, Look, if I like, well, I put $20 on the Super Bowl because I'm watching it. Sure. Yeah. Anime, or like, you know, make a side bet, like a dinner <laughs> bet on a, on a game with a buddy. That's one thing. But yeah, like, different. as like a real, like, like I know friends who, who drop, you know, thousands of dollars a week. I mean, you know, on, on the NFL every weekend, you know, yeah. that just, to me, it seems crazy. Cause like you have no control is, of it. That is yeah. risk taking. That is just right. pure. Yeah. It's out of your control. Very literally. Right. Right. So is there any recommendation that you'd provide to, to folks who have historically struggled to make big decisions or what to them feel like big decisions? Yeah. I, I think that if you, if you take the framework of, of trying to, you know, uh, Talk to people and understand what are what's all involved in in the, the you know in documenting kind of these hypotheses, these things that have to come true for for your your end result to be true, right? Um, and then think about it like, how do I prove or disprove these four things um, with like low risk, low effort, low money experiments and 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 tests. And then once you get to that point, it doesn't feel like that big of a decision. It's like, 
I'm not reinventing the like like these are the four things that have to happen, and I kind of can prove that like these can happen. Like I needed with buy a friend a drink. I needed bars to accept my gift card. I walked around the city of one of the most popular cities in America with the highest population per you know per square mile, and with with nothing behind me, nothing besides a business card that I got made for two hundred bucks. Um, uh. You know, I got people to bars to sign up, you know, so that kind of felt like a dearest, you know, if I could do it in New York, I feel like I could do it in, in all the other cities. Right. So, you know, yeah, that's kind of like that thing. Start doing, start doing it. Start yeah. you know, disproving or proving your hypotheses. And by, by the way, I say that same thing to people about their careers. You know, I talk to people all the time, like, how do I get into this career? Or how do I get into that career? Or how do I, I'm like, my answer is just do it. Don't, don't ask for permission. If you want to be in product marketing, okay, and you can't crack into product marketing, go to someone's website, look at their website, write down some thoughts yeah. and some like like analysis of how they can improve their website comparing it to other competitors. Email that to the chief marketing officer. I guarantee you you get an interview. Like yeah. they might not even be hiring, but the chief marketing officer, because that's what the chief marketing officer wants. They need people proactively providing solutions, thoughtful, thoughtful, thoughtful solutions. But if you wait for that, um, I remember a, a family member one time, she's like, uh, I want to be a, a writer, you know, I want to write like comedy shows or whatever. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Do it. Start. Start. <laughs> write a pilot. Like, like what's to stop you from like, do it, just do it, and then send it to people and be like, "Look, don't steal my work." But if you really want to steal my work, you can. Like, I can't stop you from stealing my work. But here's the, here's what, like, like, do you think this is good? Because I can come up with other things, right? Yeah. And um, and she ended up doing that, and she got a, she got a job as a writer. And so, um, you know, I, like, I just think that, like, uh, I say the same thing with like people who want to go into finance. I'm like, take, like, a thousand dollars. Right. And buy, you know, one share or three shares of like these others, these stocks, create a portfolio, yeah, you know, learn and just show them the return. Like, 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 and then, and then go on your interview, you know, and, and show them, here's what I did with a thousand dollars. I turned it into, you know, 15, uh, $1,500 in, in three months. That's a great return. Good job. You know, obviously that's not, the scale we we deal with at this at this financial institution, but awesome that yeah. you took that initiative. Walk me through your investment decision criteria. How do you did this, right? Yep. Yeah, it's funny. We um we had an intern for about nine months, and I it's not like I actually created a rec for an internship. I just had someone email me and she was living in Africa. Shout out Temi if she's listening to this. She's getting a degree in Poland right now, but um, she emailed me, cold emailed me. I'm not exactly sure how she found my email. I didn't have the podcast at the time where I talk about my email at the end. And she just said like, hey, you know, I live in Africa. I've taken a couple of courses in product marketing. I'm super passionate about it. I love what you guys are doing over at Fluvio. Like, have you thought about an internship as an opportunity, I'd love to like lend a hand. And I was just that initiative and the fact she found my email and what she wrote in the message. I was like, yeah, for sure. I've never thought about it, but let's do it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's just a good example of just go out, go out and do what you uh, are trying to achieve instead of just thinking and talking about it. Just start, start doing it 
Um, I'll tell you, we're, we're taking that same approach with Winware for lead gen. So like one of the things that I'm do, I've done is, um, is I've uh, reached out to, I've got, I've got, I go through a SaaS tool. I'll go through their onboarding. I record the screen. Yeah, it's good. And I'll point out, I'll do a voiceover with their onboarding and say, this is, this is, I, I, I even say, I was like, I bet you, you have huge fall off right here. I haven't seen any of your metrics, but I can guarantee you you have fall off right here. And I'll tell you why. And then let me show you how Monday.com does it. And I send them the video. I send the founder of the video. And and I'm like, look, I'm just basically doing a teardown of your onboarding flow for free. Yeah. It takes me five yeah. minutes to walk through it. And I'll do it for anyone. And if you want to fix it on your own, awesome. You should go fix it. If you want us to just fix it for you, we could do that too. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good approach. Especially right now where if you just blast non-personalized emails, you're just not, you're just clutter. You're not getting there. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been over an hour now, Stephen. Um, thanks so much for, for taking the time and dedicating that much time to the conversation. Um, obviously, folks can go to winware.ai if they want to learn more about the product. But how can folks sort of follow follow you and, and what you're building over there? Are you active on, on LinkedIn or Twitter or what are the best ways? I'm definitely active on LinkedIn. You can look me up on LinkedIn and connect with me. I'm happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. My uh, Twitter handle is SPCone. Uh, we also, um, S-P-C-O-H-N. Um, uh, so you can follow me on Twitter um, or you can shoot me an email, Stephen at winware.ai. Have it a chat. Awesome. Giving your email out. Great. Cool. Well, thanks again, Stephen. Is that a mistake? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Get I, I, I hope not. I hope that's not my audience. Um, no, hopefully it'll be people that are interested in using the using the tool. Um, cool. Well, thanks, thanks again, Stephen, and I uh, hope to catch up soon. Awesome. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com resources. Until next time.